0: Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name is Richard and I'm an executive director here at Ampere Analysis. I'll be your host for today. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you'll enjoy the episode. For context, Ampere Analysis is a data and analytics firm specializing in the global entertainment industry. This podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across the company to discuss the latest trends, research, and insights into the media sector. In this episode, we've got three guests who will be sharing their latest work with us. Let's begin by having our guests introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Manal.
1: Thanks, Richard. Hi, I'm Manal Modha. I'm head of consumer research here at Ampro Analysis. And today I'm going to be chatting to you about the growth of women's sports, debunking some of the myths around the fan base and uncovering what
2: the opportunities are after the England's win in the Euros. Hi, I'm Louise Shorthouse, I'm part of the games team here at Ampere and we cover everything from market data to title analytics to also consumer research and today I'm going to be talking about a piece of research that I did recently on the attention economy which essentially looks at how consumers are choosing to use their time and the various media touch points that they are interacting with of which gaming and online video are two very key areas. Hi,
3: I'm Hazel Ford and I work in the markets team here at Ampere. We look at KPIs and trends across the media and telecom space. Uh, Today, I will be talking about global data traffic and usage in 2021, with particular focus on how video usage has driven consumer demand for data.
0: You are listening to the Amp podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampere.com. Analysis.com. I'm sure many of us around the table saw England win earlier in the summer the Euros. I was pleasantly surprised to see England defending a goal in a Euros final and then not to lose on penalties. Now, Minal, you have been looking at women's sport. It's a rapidly growing business and it has an increasingly large and avid fan base. You ran some research ahead of the Euros final. What were your findings?
1: So the research that we ran was among sports fans across 12 markets, and it was really interesting to see what interest levels were like for women's sport as a whole. In some markets, like the UK and Australia, it was as high as 35%, but then in some markets like Germany, it was as low as 20%. So if we're thinking of that, a third of sports fans being interested in women's sports, as a headline figure, it's pretty good.
0: That's a pretty big fan base, So with some of those big audiences, presumably there's a big commercial opportunity.
1: Not at the moment, I would say. So within the study, we also ask about willingness to pay. And whilst in markets like the UK and Australia, a third of sports fans are interested, actually only one in 10 are willing to pay at the moment. So right now, what people have to do is grow those audiences even further before they can start thinking about monetizing them.
0: And when we're thinking about the the fans who are enjoying women's sports, who've come into the fold over the last couple of years, who are they?
1: There's this myth that a lot of women's sports fans are women. It's only really watched by women. But you mentioned the football earlier. So we can take UK football fans as an example. And actually women's football fans in the UK are younger. They skew male. They're more affluent than men's football fans. But a crucial element here is that they are more likely than average to have kids in the household. You might be thinking, why is that so important? But there's a lot of academic research which shows that sport fandom is cemented between 8 and 12 years old. And when we're being bombarded with media left, right and centre, whether that's gaming, audio, streaming, sport, if you can get people interested at that young age, you can then bring them through to hopefully being paying fans by the time they hit 18 plus.
0: If we take a step back from live sport and think about some of the adjacent sectors and i'm thinking specifically here about the video games market women's sports is now moving into the video games market in a bigger way i think fifa 23 will have um female football players on the cover for the first time this coming season um louise you've been doing some research into fan bases of football games and indeed other games what have you what have you found in your data
2: yeah, we actually ask about uh, EA FIFA, which is, of course, the main soccer game in the in the game space. Um, and we see a lot of parallels between what Manal has described in terms of sports viewers. So they are mostly young, mostly in the kind of 25 to 34 age group. The global gender split that we see there is 66% male and 34% female. So there are a sizable amount of female players of these kinds of games. In terms of female players more specifically, they are also mostly in the 25 to 34 age group. And again, they are much more likely than the average consumer to have children in the household. But one thing that is maybe slightly different is the wealth is a bit more varied, like whereas you said that the viewers are a lot more affluent, with EA FIFA, what we see is that it's a lot more spread out. And actually, they mostly over-index in the lower socioeconomic groups, which is you know, again, slightly different to what we see with more general sports fans. Because gaming is maybe a bit more of an active pastime, uh, perhaps this suggests that players of EA FIFA are a bit more aspirational and they're playing because it's something that they can see themselves doing. So that's really interesting. There's a couple of points actually there. So demographically, in terms of
1: gender, That split is exactly what we're seeing for women's football fans in the UK. But the affluence is kind of what we're seeing more for men's football, which makes sense. EA has always been marketed towards male football fans instead of female football fans. So if I was FIFA, I'd be looking at this as an opportunity. We have a very similar gender demographic split, but much more affluent women's football fans. That's where they should be targeting their marketing in the next season.
2: And it's interesting because... EA FIFA have included female footballers for actually several years now, but they've been very much on the kind of back burner. So I think since um, FIFA 16, they've included female players, but only international teams and only on a very kind of small scale. Um, So I think they did get a bit of criticism, people saying they're only doing it for publicity or kind of tokenism. But now it's great to see that they are introducing more club based teams and also they're putting females on the cover of the game as well.
1: And it's their last season with it as well, right?
2: Yes, that's right. So after FIFA 23, it's going to become EA Sport FC and it will no longer have the FIFA brand. So it feels like they're really going all out for the last instalment. And it's coincided really nicely with the Euros, of course.
0: We saw pretty record viewing figures for the Euro, certainly in the UK at least. Um, you know, some massive figures on the BBC. Coming back to you, Manal, you've been doing a little bit of digging into how people have been viewing women's sports. What did you find?
1: So those viewing figures that you mentioned, they're absolutely astronomical. The BBC reported 17.4 million people watched the win. That was up nearly 50% on England's semi-final against the US back in 2019. And then on top of that, there were nearly 6 million streaming views on iPlayer. And it just shows the importance of both linear and streaming, especially for sports fans where the demographic is spread so much. But it also shows that sport is beginning to follow that pattern that we're seeing on traditional, I guess, entertainment platforms as well, where offering a streaming option as well as a linear option is going to become so important in the future for engaging audiences.
3: And it's worth noting that those figures of 17.4 million on the TV and 6 million streams will be an underrepresentation of the number of people watching, given the number of uh, parties in pubs, people viewing it, um, linking a, a laptop to a projector maybe and having a larger party in a house or in a garden. So there are many more eyeballs that were on the final than the pure numbers suggest.
1: Yeah, and definitely, especially when you see the huge crowds that they got in Trafalgar Square. I know we had a few of the people in the office here who went to it as well.
0: I imagine some of the fan bases are going to be even bigger next time around. So it'll be fascinating to see when the next wave of the sports research comes out, whether there's been a big uplift in the number of um, women's sports fans um, that we see in the UK and other markets. Now, coming back to the overlap between games and sports... Louise, we've seen some parallels in the video games and televised sports markets, both seeing an opportunity to target new audiences, to grow complementary sports fan bases in parallel. But are the games and TV content sectors always
2: complementary? Yes, I would say for the most part, they probably are. They both rank really highly in terms of the media touch points that people are using. In fact, the overlap that we see between the two is really quite significant. So for the US specifically, 75% of consumers are doing both. They're watching video and playing games, probably not at the same time. Whereas only 20% are only watching online video and only 5% are only gaming.
0: And you you, you talk about, um, I guess the different touch points that games and TV represent. Now they're they're fulfilling, I guess, different need states.
2: Yeah. So games are, of course, a lot more engaging, a lot more active, a lot more mentally taxing, I would say. Games are kind of lean forward media, whereas video is more lean back. So I think they actually work quite well together and complement each other very well. And of course, they're both screen-based media, so that helps too.
0: And if we think about the amount of time, my, my guess is that with games being potentially more mentally taxing they're sometimes less useful for relaxing so i'm going to guess people generally spend slightly less time with games than vegging out on the sofa in front of the latest series of your favorite show i I guess that's shown up in your research
2: yes absolutely so the average us consumer again this is just the us spends just over five hours per day watching video which is quite a lot and comparatively they spend just under one hour playing games so that's a ratio of more than five to one. So it's quite considerable.
0: That's presumably quite skewed across different generational um, groups that younger consumers, I guess, will have a more balanced games, TV mix than older consumers.
2: So both activities actually peak in the kind of middle age ranges, so the sort of 25 to 44 age groups. They are the groups in which they tend to be prioritised as pastimes or media activities. Age is, of course, a key factor in the distribution of attention. So time spent gaming actually declines far more dramatically with age than time spent watching video, which is probably not that surprising. So between the 18 to 24 and 55 to 64 age groups. Time spent gaming declines by 65%, which is really quite a lot. But whereas time spent watching video only declines by around 16%. And when we look at gender, female consumers both game less and watch less video which again is possibly not that surprising. So video viewing declines by about 8% for females versus males and gaming declines by around 32%. So ultimately it's young males that are spending the most time doing both of these activities. And again, probably not that surprising.
0: It makes me wonder what what else they're doing with their, uh, their days. <laughs> but, um, and the, the other part of your research I know um, from chatting in advance was about how efficient or how much money these activities are actually capable of driving so the games and tv markets are, are very different scales but equally as we've just heard people spend vastly different amounts of time gaming versus watching tv what what did you find with your research into i guess how efficient games and tv are at generating money
2: Typically, games are thought of as very good value for money. That's something that is often said because you have a one-off payment, which might be quite a lot. It might be fixed 50 or 60 pounds, but then you might get hundreds of hours worth of time out of that one game. But what we see is that consumers actually spend more money per hour of gameplay than on each hour spent watching video. So the average consumer spends um, per hour of gaming is spending around 56 cents. Whereas for broadcast TV, which is largely access to pay TV, that goes down to 55 cents. And for subscription video on demand services, that drops to just 43 cents. So essentially time spent gaming is just directly monetized much more effectively. And I think part of this is because there is no ceiling on monetization for games. So many games are free to play, but then you can go in and spend a lot of money on microtransactions, which, you know, there's no cap on that. And of course, advertising isn't included in this. And if you were to factor in advertising, that would change the picture quite considerably, and it would skew a lot more in favor of the video services.
0: Now, it's interesting you mentioned, mentioned advertising and perhaps subscription video on demand services because we've recently seen groups like Netflix begin to look more seriously at the ad market. Um, I guess the other thing that we've seen in relation to subscription streaming products and um, the video game sector is is a lot more convergence, both in terms of the the services they offer, but also in terms of the IP that they're making use of. So there have been a lot of crossovers for, for Netflix, for instance, a few new series and movies that they've been launching. How, how big is IP convergence across the games and video space?
2: Yes, that's right. So Fortnite would be a really great example of this. I know you also mentioned Netflix. Fortnite has done, I think, more than 120 IP crossovers to date, and they have a lot more in the pipeline. So that's media-based um, IP, so things from TV and video, but also sports and broader entertainment. And actually, what we're seeing is a lot more consumption of other media through games. So games are becoming a kind of access point for other types of media, whether that's movies and TV or, or music. You mentioned Netflix as another example. Um, so League of Legends, of course, had the arcane series, which was very successful on Netflix. Um, and they also have Hextech Mayhem, which is a mobile game which is listed in the Netflix games service. So what we're seeing is these companies becoming more kind of one-stop shops for entertainment. They're trying to include all different types of media within their offerings to try and keep people within their ecosystem. And actually, this type of bundling really makes sense in terms of the research that I've been doing, because as we mentioned before, different demographics have different preferences in terms of the media that they like to use. With the Netflix example, it's obviously only available on mobile gaming at the moment. Do you think that's
1: going to be quite a big constriction in terms of how popular it can become?
2: Yes, absolutely. Especially in terms of more Western markets, I think, because mobile gaming is a lot more popular in, I suppose, what we would call fast growing, more developing markets like um, South America, um, Southeast Asia. India specifically is a really strong market for mobile gaming. So yes, I think it definitely restricts them.
0: You mentioned a few of the demographic changes or demographic differences between gamers. I, I thought it was quite interesting picking up on that. That Netflix has faced some of its more challenging periods in in recent quarters and think, Manal, that some of your research indicates that where Netflix has faced the toughest time has been among some of the younger consumer groups who've been, perhaps they picked up Netflix during the pandemic and now they're leaving. And we've actually seen declines in the subscriber base amongst some of the younger groups. Um, So it feels there's an interesting parallel, an interesting convergence that Netflix is now presumably attempting to prop up its engagement amongst those younger brackets who are, I guess, avid gamers. And of course, it's not just the subscription services that are making moves into the gaming space. We know that social groups are also beginning to turn their attention to gaming in a bigger way. Hazel, we were discussing before the session about TikTok's latest moves into the gaming sector.
3: Yeah. So TikTok is a really good example of um, converging game and video now because um, TikTok has started launching casual games on its platform to um, reach out to its big demographic of young users. And there are so many users of TikTok. And they also spend a lot of time on TikTok uh, with global monthly usage reaching over 20 billion hours, which works out as users using on average an hour a day of TikTok. So this is particularly video now, seeing as the gaming thing has only just launched. But if people are willing to spend that much time consuming TikTok video per day, it's not unreasonable to think that they may in the future dedicate some of that time or even more time towards um, gaming on TikTok, therefore keeping them into one ecosystem where they can satisfy all of their entertainment needs.
0: Of course, this isn't just about younger consumers. Louise, I know you've been looking into demographic differences in your research.
3: Yes.
2: What we've seen as part of our attention economy research is that older demographics are gradually getting more and more into short video platforms. So I think what we're seeing is the kind of demographic reach of different types of media really start to broaden and it's getting more competitive and more and more difficult out there.
0: And that's happening across video and and games. We've definitely seen it with TikTok has moved into older groups, but you're seeing it with the video gaming space as well?
2: Oh, definitely. Especially during the pandemic, there was a really kind of noticeable uplift, I think, in older people playing more games and just just having a much broader reach because people have the time and the space to get involved.
0: And presumably they're... I guess they're playing slightly different sorts of games. They're not all Call of Duty fans, I would assume.
2: (laughs) Well, I suppose there might be a few, but no, typically it is probably what you'd expect. So it's the puzzle games, the mobile-based games, maybe even traditional board games that you would get mobile game versions of. It's generally that type of thing. It's funny you say that. The
1: amount of people I know who took up uh, mobile chess in the pandemic and now are addicted to it is ridiculous.
2: I think it was like a social thing, wasn't it? During the pandemic, it was a way for people to connect. And I think a lot of people have held on to that and have carried on doing it since the pandemic has been over.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly from my perspective, a group of uh, my university friends and I play, still play video games every Sunday night now. And it's a way to chat in a way we probably wouldn't have done pre, uh, pre-pandemic. Picking up on something you said, uh, just then, Hazel, about the sheer volume of video that's being consumed on TikTok. Um, I know you've been looking more widely at video usage patterns globally, partly through the lens of data traffic. Um, if we think about video, that's that's one of the biggest drivers of data traffic worldwide. Um, how much video is actually being delivered online now?
3: Yes, so... I've done quite a lot of research into uh, data traffic usage. So if we look specifically at um, 2021, there was 4 billion terabytes globally of fixed and mobile data that was used in 2021. So this is compared to only 1.5 billion terabytes in 2017. And it's estimated that about 80% of all of that data used is video.
0: And what, what what does that actually look like? So when we're talking about billions of terabytes... Per user, you know, how much data is that and, and how much video is that?
3: Per user, the global average for monthly data per person will be around 52 gigabytes. And if 80% of that is video, that's around 40 gigabytes. And, for, and what, what what does
0: 40 gigabytes of video look like as a consumer? How many hours would I have to watch to, to consume 40 gigabytes?
3: Uh, so, for example, in the UK the average for data usage per person is much higher so that's 190 gigabytes per month so if you assume that around 80 to 85% is video that would equal 175 hours of video per month which is 7 days straight
0: that's a huge amount of video i guess i'd guess some of that is going to be uh, zoom calls as well as watching tv but yeah I mean,
3: you'd imagine a little bit of that nowadays will be covered by uh, video conferencing
0: n- nonetheless a massive amount of video being watched there. yes And and I guess, you you know, you talked about the UK there. If we're thinking about how that video is being watched, you've got two options. You're on a fixed connection, Wi-Fi, smart TV, or on your PC, or via a mobile connection potentially outside the house. How, How does that look in the UK?
3: So in the UK, it's remarkable how little data is used on mobile. This is data generally, not just for video. So only 5% of data traffic in the UK in 2021 was mobile. So we've got 95% fixed data. That's a huge amount that's going through the well-established broadband market. And that's something that you might generally expect in the more developed markets with big broadband infrastructure and fast broadband infrastructure. Whereas if you compare it to a completely different type of developing market like India, In India, there is um, 93% of the traffic in 2021 was mobile, not fixed.
2: That's really interesting. And it actually makes a lot of sense in terms of the game space as well, because India is very much a mobile gaming focused market. People there generally don't have as much access to um, big screen devices like consoles or PCs. So the vast majority of their gaming is on a smartphone. And also because of that, they are playing much more data intensive games on those devices because they still want that big screen experience, but they just don't have a PlayStation or a gaming PC to be able to do so. So they're doing it on their smartphones. Whereas in the UK, we are a much more big screen gaming focused markets. So console is a lot stronger in the UK. A lot more people have PCs that are capable of running more hardcore games. So that actually makes a lot of sense. And also what we see in our consumer research is that with mobile gamers, they actually spend most of their time playing at home. So they're not even playing outside. So again, that makes a lot of sense.
0: It's really interesting to hear how fixed networks are so important in markets like the UK to both video and gaming usage what what i found absolutely fascinating about today is we've taken three very diverse topics women's sports the gaming market and how it intersects with tv and global data traffic and yet there are Some very similar patterns emerging across all three. From a usage standpoint, we've just heard that there are parallels in how consumers engage with games in developed markets versus developing markets and how we see streaming viewing evolving with a focus on large screen devices in mature countries and smartphone gaming in those less established markets. We're also seeing convergence from both games, sport and TV where they're looking for the opportunity to expand with respect to women's sports addressable audiences and fan bases um, and potentially better representation in TV. We're also seeing cross-sector IP and business model convergence. Streamers like Netflix applying scripted IP to the game sector and social video companies moving more aggressively into the gaming market. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. All of the data discussed today is available on Ampere's website. Do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. As always, if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening.